If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Hello, I'm Rob Attar and this is the fourth History Extra podcast for August 2012. Coming up in this week's episode, we have... Online geospatial mapping is still using Ptolemy, which I think gives you a sense of, of how remarkable it is. That was Jerry Brotton on The Father of Geography. Nervous, windy spasms. Yeah. And that was David Musgrove being surprised by a Victorian recipe book. This podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC History magazine, which is Britain's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. There are more details of our latest issue and subscription deals on our website, which is historyextra.com. And we are now available in a number of digital formats. You can purchase our Kindle edition direct from the Amazon website, and our iPad edition is available from the Apple newsstand. You can find out more details of all of this on our website. Of course, we're on social media as well. You can keep up to date with us and get in touch at facebook.com forward slash history extra and twitter.com forward slash history extra. In our September issue, historian Jerry Brotton examines the work of Ptolemy, a second century AD geographer who worked in Alexandria in Egypt. Ptolemy was the author of Geography, which became the foundation text for map-making for centuries afterwards. So great, in fact, was Ptolemy's legacy that it influenced the explorations of Columbus and can even be seen in Google Earth. I paid a visit to see Jerry a few weeks ago to get the full story. What do we know about Ptolemy himself as a person? What's really interesting is that we know virtually nothing about Ptolemy. So there are much later... Uh, Greek records um, talking about him but from his actual life we know virtually nothing and this is what's really interesting because he's known as the father of modern geography but all we know is that he lived around 150 AD he lived in Alexandria he presumably had some connection with the Alexandria library Mm. which is where he developed his research that led to the production of the geography around the same time, 150 AD. But beyond that, we know virtually nothing. We assume that he was probably Egyptian in the sense that we would understand it, but his name would indicate a connection to the Roman Hellenic tradition. So he's possibly Greek. He's certainly coming out of a Greek tradition. Um, So we tend to see him as really a Greek geographer working in Alexandria. Um, But that's really all we know, which is 
sort of interesting because um, it just gives us very, very little to go on in terms of who he was, what his motivation was for mapping, um, why he created the geography. All we have is that text itself. Um, and that in itself tells us very little because it's really a very disinterested scientific account uh, uh, really of how you draw up a map and what the world looks like circa 150 AD. And so you could briefly summarise what exactly are the contents of the geography, what, what is in it if someone were to pick it up? The geography you can see in modern translations is basically a series of books which are like a toolkit. It's a toolkit of how to make a map of the world. So it's a series of chapters which are drawing on Euclidean geometry, a drawing on the knowledge of the known world at the time of 150 AD, which is often called by historians of geography the oikumeni. Oikumeni means the living space. It's the Mediterranean world. And what the book does is start by defining geography. It says what geography is. Geography is a description um, of the world and all the parts within it. And then it gives you examples of how you might draw a map of the world. And Ptolemy is very interesting because he says, I understand that the world is spherical. You cannot therefore square the circle. You cannot map the world on a flat surface, on a rectangle, um, because it's a globe. You have to make compromises and you have to make distortions. So what the book does is it offers two methods for drawing the world. Um, so there's the first projection and the second projection. Um, and that's quite detailed. It's literally, it says, you know, you take a piece of paper, you get a pen, you shape the world like this, and it tells you how to do it very precisely. What the second half of the book does is give you coordinates for about 8,000 locations, places in the known world, as it was known to the Greeks in 150 AD, and the Romans, of course. Um, so it's a sort of like a game of battleships. It gives you all the coordinates, and it then says, you can go away and you can draw a map according to your own principles, whatever you want to do. So it's extraordinary, really. It's not very prescriptive. It just says, these are the problems. This is how you draw a map. These are the coordinates of the world as we know it. And I think that's one of the reasons that it's so successful, because it basically says, choose your method of mapping, and here are the coordinates, but the world is probably larger than this, so you can find new places, so your map can infinitely grow. And I think that's why it was so successful, and, and for thousands of years, of course, carried on being so influential. Did people at the time then draw maps, do we know, based on this book? Did it have any practical application? Not really, because we know that there's two traditions. What Ptolemy does is he sort of summarises a, a Greek, very philosophical tradition of geography and a Roman tradition which is much more about imperial administration. Um, so what you have throughout the Greek tradition is different ways of mapping the world. And there are all kinds of different assessments of how you draw, how you use a globe, how you project it onto a rectangle. And that goes right back to um, Plato and Aristotle and before all with a notion, of course, of the Earth as being spherical. They're very sophisticated in their understanding of it. They even have a very accurate measurement of the circumference of the Earth. So Ptolemy's drawing on that tradition, but he's also drawing on a Roman tradition, which is much more about mapping roads, mapping imperial territory, and then the globe for the Romans is much more a sort of symbolic image. You know, it stands in Rome as an image of imperium. Um, so he's sort of bringing the two together. 
But what's interesting is that the book really gets lost. It isn't really taken up after Ptolemy's death. And interestingly, it goes into the Arabic world. And the Arabs are particularly interested in Ptolemy for astronomical reasons, because he's also writing books about astronomy. Um, but they're also interested to some extent in how he maps. But the book completely disappears. You know, it's part of that, that sort of Dark Ages argument, which to some extent is true here, because basically the book is written in 150 AD, it almost completely disappears from sight until it's rediscovered um, in the late Byzantine Empire in the 12th and 13th century. So there's really a thousand years where it just goes underground um, and it really resurfaces in the Arabic world. And one of the interesting elements of the book is that it tells a story about how both East and West take different routes in terms of how they map. So the Islamic tradition ends up taking up Ptolemy from the 8th, 9th century, and then the Byzantines, and then of course the European Renaissance, takes up Ptolemy in a slightly different way from the 12th, 13th, 14th centuries. And what about his book was new? Was it a really revolutionary book when it was written? I don't think it is. I think this is what's really interesting about it. It's a sort of summation of universal knowledge at that time. Um, because 150 AD seems quite early, but actually it's very late in the tradition of the Alexandria Library. The Alexandria Library is seriously in decline. It's been pillaged, it's been burnt. It's at, it's at the, the end of that great flowering of Hellenic civilization. So I think what is going on is that Ptolemy comes along and almost summarizes everything. It's the summation of a culture's perception of geography. Um, so in a way, it's not terribly radical. He, he actually, he completely uh, underestimates the, the size of the earth. There are more recent Greek traditions which give him a much more accurate take, but he ignores them, he gets it all wrong. Um, so in many ways, it's not very new and it's not very accurate, but what it does is it just gives you the tools as to how you may map the world, and that's what people take forward for the next over a thousand years. So is its importance more the fact that it was rediscovered around the Renaissance time? Is that why it's so important now? Yeah, because the great thing about Ptolemy is that we, um, we don't even know if he drew any maps. This is one of the great elements that it's, uh, it's a text, it's a written text. Um, the descriptions describe drawing maps, but no maps survive until the late 12th, early 13th century. The first world maps in Ptolemy are Byzantine copies of over a thousand years later. So this is really fascinating because historians of, of cartography still argue, did Ptolemy draw maps or not? Um, and I think he probably didn't. I think in a weird way, it's almost, uh, it's a digital way of describing geography. It's about numbers. That's what he gives you. He gives you numbers, coordinates, geometry, how you draw something. And I think that's why it endures, because people can then use it as, as I say, a kind of toolkit. So when the Portuguese or the Italians are starting to, to to engage in seaborne discoveries and exploration from the 15th century. They're going to Ptolemy because Ptolemy gives them a method for how they might map. They're not interested in whether Ptolemy's geography of the world is right or wrong. They're interested in using that as a template, as a model for how they may map. And that's what they do and that's why they're so fascinated by producing new editions of Ptolemy, because actually what they're doing is just using him as a template, and the maps they produce 
have very little in common with the Greek world as Ptolemy describes it, because they're doing maps of the Americas, they're doing maps of the Far East, which Ptolemy didn't know anything about. But it's a model that he gives them, which is very useful for a certain period of time. And is that still being used now, his principles? When did they stop being used? Well, the principles aren't uh, haven't really um, stopped at all. I mean, he gives you the basic elements of how you draw a map using uh, latitude and longitude. He gives you a basic understanding of how you see the Earth from space and how you map um, a world onto a flat rectangle. Ptolemy really gives you that. So in a sense, it's the foundational principles of all map making. So it's really only in the 16th century that people start to say, people like McKay to say, Ptolemy's vision of what the world looks like is wrong, or it's limited. And it's only from the 16th century that those ideas of Ptolemy's world go into decline, and it just becomes an element of historical curiosity. But the basic foundational principles endure right through. The, the projection that Google Earth uses on its homepage um, is called a pr perspective projection, which is how you see the Earth from space. Ptolemy gives a description of that projection, he calls it his third projection, in the geography in 150 AD. So online geospatial mapping is still using Ptolemy, which I think gives you a sense of, of how remarkable it is. It's not a revolutionary book, but it is a, a remarkable book. In fact, for your book, you spoke to people at Google Earth. They mentioned Ptolemy at all? No, they didn't. I mean, it's really interesting because, of course, a lot of the people who work now in online mapping are not trained in geography. They are what they call geospatial engineers. Um, they're basically working in computer software. So it's quite interesting that um, they sort of understand the historical tradition within which they're working, Ptolemy, Mercator, Ortelius, and so on. Um, but really what they're interested in is is warping and messing around with software um, because it's really visual data. You know, Google Earth is not a map, it's a photoreal image. I mean, you can switch, if you're on Google, you can switch between Google Earth and Google Maps. Um, but they, they are really much more interested in this as computer code. But I still think that's really what Ptolemy is offering right back in the geography. He's giving you a form of rudimentary code in terms of numbers, latitude, longitude, how you actually draw a projection. And that's really what those computer engineers at places like Google are still doing. So I don't think they really get the fact that they're part of a much longer history. Although, of course, calling Google Earth Google Earth is quite a deliberate geographical act. You know, it's interesting that it's not called Google World, because it's a world map. But by using Earth, they're again returning to the idea of um, the soil, you know, that there's something environmental and slightly touchy-feely about it. And of course, Ptolemy defines geography as geography. Geo is from the Greek idea of the goddess of the earth, Gaia, actually. And uh, graphos is, of course, the graphic to write, to draw, geography. Um, and Google Earth is doing something quite similar. You know, it's saying it's Google Earth. So it has a certain argument about environmentalism, a common Earth, a whole Earth, you know, a fragile Earth. And so I think they're drawing on those very distinctive ways of describing our common geography, which is around Earth. It's not around the idea of world or even globe. You know, it could be Google Globe. It's a globe, actually, that they show us. Um, but they're using that term Earth very deliberately, and that has a very long 
cartographic lineage which goes right back to Ptolemy. So do you think if Ptolemy had somehow survived to this day on age 2000, would he recognise the things in Google Earth? Would he not find it such a leap then? He'd absolutely see it because what he describes is um, how you imaginatively detach yourself from the Earth and you look down on it from a godlike perspective. And that's one of the most significant things about what all world maps do. They take a godlike perspective. And of course, Google Earth is the first, if you want to call it a map, it's certainly the first geographical application which actually is using data which is taken from that godlike perspective. It's satellite data which is taken above the Earth. But I think Ptolemy would be fascinated by it because it finally gives him the perspective that he's always imagined, literally imagined. You know, all map makers before the 1970s have to imagine. It's an imaginative act to detach themselves from the Earth and look down on it as a small blue marble. Um, and of course Google Earth now gives you that, that resource. So I think Ptolemy would be fascinated by it. I don't know what he'd think about the, the, the commercial uh, dimensions of it, but he'd certainly get the fact that this is an extraordinary summation, really, of a, of a much longer history of, of, of technological innovation in terms of how we map the Earth. And so is Ptolemy really the sort of key player in geography in this period? Absolutely. I mean, as I say, it's, it's weird because there's not a lot of historical chatter about him um, for many hundreds of years. There are fragments, but no, he's not as important as many of the much earlier Greek figures um, that are known around this period. Um, he does go into a sort of twilight world, but certainly from the late 14th, early 15th century, by then he's the figure and he remains so really for another 200 years. Um, until, interestingly, of course, uh, the Copernican Revolution, because, of course, what Ptolemy is talking about is uh, a, a geocentric universe. The Earth is at the centre of everything. And really, it's with Copernicus in 1543 on the revolution of the spheres, which changes all that and says you know, the sun is at the centre of the solar system, the Earth revolves around the sun. Um, and that, of course, takes a long time to, to work through into the common consciousness. And I have a chapter on uh, Blau's Atlas Maior, which is mid-17th century. And that first enshrines a Copernican view of the universe. So it shows a world map with the idea that we are no longer at the centre of the universe. And from that point on, I think that whole Ptolemaic world picture certainly is, is, is definitively over. Because it does, of course, put the world at the centre of everything um, from a Greek perspective. And that's one that the Catholic Church likes the idea of. But by the 17th century, that's very much over. So he had a good run, so for 1,500 years he was <laughs> the leading light in the he, he had a field. He had a great run, and I mean, still, yeah, anybody who has to talk about either the history of geography or the history of cartography, the foundational text is Ptolemy's geography. Everybody has to account for it. Um, but it's very interesting because it's, it's created by somebody that we know virtually nothing about, and it's... Um, it contains no maps from its, we see from its earliest manifestations. So I think there's still, I think it's interesting because classicists I still think have a lot of work to do to try and find out more about what was really happening at that moment. So I don't think it's over. We still need to know a lot more about both what drove Ptolemy and actually still how the work uh, re-emerged. And there's still interesting work being done on Arabic and Islamic 
mapping and how they perceive Ptolemy. So I think the story is by no means over. But yeah, he's absolutely foundational to everything around the story of maps and the story of geography. And isn't he quite important in exploration as well? Didn't some of the explorers take him with them on their voyages? Absolutely, because what's interesting is that both Columbus in 1492 and Magellan in his 1519 circumnavigation of the Earth use Ptolemy's coordinates. And Ptolemy's coordinates are wrong. <laughs> but in their, in their wrongness they, and, and in their error, they believe that going west to get to the east, which drives both Columbus and Magellan. You know, Magellan's idea is that you sail uh, via the tip of South America to get to the spice-producing islands of the Indonesian archipelago. So his idea is going via the Cape is much longer, according to Ptolemy. He's using Ptolemy's coordinates. And he thinks, using Ptolemy, that if you go west, you're going to get to the east quicker. And Columbus, of course, believes that as well, because he's, of course, trying to get to Japan and China. He doesn't think that America's in the way. So he uses Ptolemy, just as Magellan does, and that's what drives both of them to go west. Um, so without Ptolemy's mistakes, we wouldn't have had Columbus and certainly Magellan's voyage. Um, and of course, for Magellan, it's fatal because that mistake leads him to sail right across most of the Pacific Ocean. And of course, he dies in the Philippines. Um, in a skirmish that he gets involved in with locals. And there's no doubt, I think, that if both men had a more accurate assessment of the circumference of the Earth, they wouldn't have gone. But because they have this inaccurate circumference based on Ptolemy, they decide that this is a viable voyage. And certainly Magellan's isn't viable. Um, and certainly for Magellan, it's fatal. So he's absolutely central. So all that history of discovery from the mid-15th right through to the late 16th century is endlessly using Ptolemy. Because what everybody, everybody knows that bits of Ptolemy are wrong. They've no doubt that Ptolemy is wrong in a lot of what he says. Of course he is, because he has no conception of the Americas. But what they want is a template, a model, within which they can start changing things. They can say, OK, this is our template, according to Ptolemy. Um, and OK, America's new, and this is new, and oh, actually, you know, Southeast Asia is completely new. But they can start to try and test and assess how they reshape a map of the world. And gradually, the Ptolemaic picture starts to morph and change. But that's all they've got. So that's the model that they begin with. And that's why it takes so long, gradually, for them to disassociate themselves from Ptolemy. Because it's a useful, it's like a big chessboard. It's, it's a good way of roughly getting a sense of what your world looks like. And of course, as with all these things, as with Galen um, and all these great Aristotle, the great classical authorities, people are very reluctant to give up on them. So there's a lot of uh, examples of when people discover places in South America. Uh, back in Europe, people say, it can't be true because Ptolemy says it can't be true. So there's still a lot of that, that people uh, like Columbus, like Magellan, a lot of the early mapmakers are playing an interesting game where they're having to say, well, Ptolemy didn't seem to believe that Brazil existed, but he's a bit vague. And now, well, yeah, maybe we can account for Brazil through Ptolemy. Because, of course, what they want is the classical authority to legitimate the new discoveries, because then people will believe them. So it's a weird cat-and-mouse game that's played with you know, what they believe Ptolemy might have said and might have thought, and using that, using Ptolemy as a sort of crutch to convince people. Because otherwise people would just say, well, the classic, the classic 
authors don't say anything about this place, so we don't believe that it can be true. Because, of course, the Renaissance is a period of the re rebirth of classical learning, which is what you take as your absolute authority on everything. And it takes a long time, as it does with people like Aristotle, for those beliefs to shift and to people to, to truly challenge them and prove them to be wrong. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. That was Jerry Broughton, Professor of Renaissance Studies at Queen Mary, University of London. Jerry is the author of A History of the World in 12 Maps, which will be published by Alan Lane next month. And do also look out for his piece on Ptolemy in the September issue of BBC History magazine, which is available now in the UK and internationally on the Kindle and the iPad. Before the next interview, I'd like to remind you about a couple of lectures we're putting on at the British Academy in London over the next couple of months. On Thursday the 20th of September, Tracy Borman and Mark Morris will be discussing the Norman Conquest. And then on Thursday the 18th of October, Lawrence Rees and Ashley Jackson will be considering two Second World War leaders, Hitler and Churchill. On both occasions you'll have the chance to meet the distinguished speakers afterwards and purchase signed copies of their books. Tickets are still available for both talks. Go to historyextra.com forward slash lectures for more details and to buy tickets. And if you're a subscriber to the magazine, you'll save £5 on the ticket price. BBC History Magazine's publisher, David Musgrove, visited the Borthwick Institute at the University of York recently and met up with two trainee archivists there, Amy Croker and Zoe Harrigan, who've been researching some curious 18th and 19th century recipe books in the papers of the Halifax Collection there. David leafed through the books with Amy and Zoe, but first he asked Amy to introduce the archive. So we're looking at these, these, these records which are related to, to consumption of food and preparation of food from the 17th to the 19th century. And they're all from, uh, from the Halifax archive and that relates to, to, broadly speaking, the Wood family. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, when people think of the Wood family, they might most instantly think of um, E.F.L. Wood, who was actually acted as Foreign Secretary during um, the Second World War in Neville Chamberlain and Churchill's government. And his... Um, great-grandfather actually owned the recipes, most of the recipes that we see here today or were produced or compiled by his wife anyway. Um, Mary Wood's recipe book is particularly interesting um, and she was the wife of Charles Wood uh, and also the daughter of Earl Grey, uh, the famous Prime Minister who lent his name to the bergamot flavoured tea. Um, so this is a family of quite some weight in Yorkshire. Charles himself actually um, served as Chancellor of the Exchequer um, in John Russell's government. So they were a family of quite strong political background and quite some weight in the government. Um, so an, a notable Yorkshire family with, with strong political connections. And, and do we know where, where they were resident? Um, they had a number of residences. Uh, Temple Newson was one in, near Leeds. Um, Hickleton Hall in Doncaster and also Garraby as well. Okay, and their archive has been deposited here at the Borfolk Institute? Yes. 
Shall we start at the beginning then with this with this earlier recipe book then? So what's uh, what's this from and, uh, and what sort of things have you found in it? It's, uh, it's one of these documents where oh no, it's not, the, the writing is fairly legible actually, isn't it? Uh, what's what's the what's the date of this then? Were you saying? We haven't got an exact date on this, but we think it dates from the 17th or 18th century. Um, so probably a collection of recipes throughout, handed down perhaps, and from friends and family. Um, this one's interesting because it has interesting recipes like to, to colour a calf's head. Right. Um, and we have another um, evidence of the sharing of recipes between friends and family. So here's obviously a letter from Mrs Blythman. Um, so... The, re- the recipes were being received in a letter to preserve walnuts and then has obviously been kept and copied down later neatly into the book. So perhaps the recipe was tried and tested and approved and they thought this is good enough to go into our book now. And ah. OK. There's some interesting creams here that you might not hear of now, like tough taffety cream, which is quite a quaint. What's that? Tough, tough taffety cream. <laughs> and okay. she's written below it approved, so she's obviously tried it and... Thought it was a good recipe. And what do you have to do? Take a quart of thick cream, the whites of six, six or seven eggs. Beat the whites with a little, little rose water. All to froth with a whisk. Take it off, put it in the cream, then set it on the fire and let it boil, stirring continuously. Mm, oh, very Jamie Oliver, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> and you can see some, not a lot, but some foreign influences this, in this book because it still is quite. Um, relatively early recipe book so here we have French dumplings showing some early um, French influences and then at the back we have um, sort of obviously a rough sketch out of what a meal might have consisted of so first course and um, the second course with uh, chicken puddings and then a turkey in the second remove. Got some wild fowl and some lobsters there. And Mince pies. A shoulder of mutton. Right. That's not a light meal, is it? <laughs> and well, what, what they, they would have done is they would have... They wouldn't have been expected to eat everything. They would have... Everything would have been presented. As they walk into the room, all the food will have been laid out for the first course. And then the guests will have sat down and they will have just taken bits of whatever they fancied. They wouldn't have been expected to just consume everything. Um, it wasn't a case of all you can eat. It was a case of providing something to suit everyone's taste. Mm. Sure, sure. So uh, was, is, is there any sort of preface to this book? What does it start with? Does it just start with it a just, recipe? or It just leaps straight into the recipe. Let's, let's have a look at the, at the start of it. So it seems like some of the pages are actually missing. Yeah. Um, it begins on page five, and, ah, so we and could they've be... obviously been ripped out. But it could well have just been recipes from the start. But the favourite ones were perhaps ripped out and given to friends or given to members of the family. Yeah, it's clearly been quite well used, hasn't it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Actually, could do with some conservation work. <laughs> <laughs> it's very fragile. Yeah. So this is this is the is this the oldest recipe book that you've that you've discovered in the collection? Yes, it is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, and do you have any uh, any any idea about how common these sorts of books might have been more broadly? Have you have you have you been able to look beyond just the? the, the I, I think they would be quite common. I think it was sort of um, obviously cookery books, printed cookery books, quite popular in the Victorian as well as pre that time. Um, and I think the lady of the house would have had the book and copied out the recipes that she 
specifically wanted and then that would have gone to the staff, the housekeeper and such. So I would imagine a lot of houses would have had their own handwritten recipe books mm. in order to refer to. Okay. Um, should we move on uh, in, in, in time a bit then? So, so we've got some more books here. Where, what, what are these? Where do they date from? Well, we've got uh, Lady Anne Woods here. Um, receipts of Anne Wood. Okay. So what, what period uh, so could this be? So that is eight... Um, that would have been late, 1800, late 18th century, sorry. Okay. Yeah. And the interesting thing about this one <coughs> is that, it, that it's predominantly medicinal. Right. So they're sort of homemade remedies for things like gout and rheumatism and asthma and things like that. And the sort of funny thing about them is that they often contain the same kind of spices as the food recipes. So there's not a lot in them aside from the fact that they have things like sulphur or lead or Lord mercury <laughs> laudanum yeah um so there's kind of a, a toxic element to it so some of them are very sort of um broad so we've got dr johnson's elixir of health right and that's just uh what have we got senna coriander caraway uh, juniper berries, yeah, bit of saffron, saffron some treacle, treacle maybe. Yeah, oh, well, that sounds helpful. Yeah, a spot of gin yeah. as well. Yeah. Uh, takes ten days to and, work, and then you'll be healthy. And then you'll be just healthy. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so it's very sort of non-specific. And then there are some that are, yeah, there's nervous windy spasms here. Nervous windy spasms. Yeah. I'm not entirely sure what that <laughs> means, but hmm. um, violent discharges. And, and we assume that these are, would be made much in the same way as the food. It would be a book that sat in the, perhaps in her possession rather than in the kitchen, but it was all the same sorts of ingredients. Mm. So there's purgative gingerbread. That sounds delightful. Yeah. It's not quite what you want your gingerbread to do. Um, Pegoric elixir. But, uh, what else have we got? Oh, that's right. Application for all inward pains and spasms. Very efficacious and safe. <laughs> Contains laudanum. Right. So, <laughs> probably relaxing you further. So, it does seem quite interesting that there were so many medicinal recipes here. If you swallow a pin, that's how to. What should you do get if you swallow back. a pin? Take four. Four grams of uh, emetic tartar. Swallow the whites of six raw eggs before the emetic tartar takes effect. The eggs will have formed an envelope around the pin and be thrown up. Remarkable. Yeah, apparently. We've not tried it. No? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so... It's, I wonder how common pin swallowing was. Well, yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Um... Yeah, so that's sort of... Okay, so it's a, a, a medicinal recipe book, and then behind it, is this a more more traditional recipe book? Here? Yeah, these are... Um, I think there are some medicinal recipes towards the end, but they're mostly food, and they're from uh, Marywood, so that would be 1870, I think this book dates right. at. And it's... Um, it's, a very, it's a very nice book, really, isn't it? It's... It's yeah. actually approved by CW there, so presuming yeah. that's Charles W, her, uh, her husband. So right. she's obviously tried that and said, oh, I like that. Tell the housekeeper to make a note of it. Yeah. And uh, 
What is that? Prime beef for hanging. For hanging, right. yeah. Right, okay. So that's, that's, that's got the nod of approval. Right, yeah. eh? Yeah, and it's also a recipe. I mean, hanging beef is quite common still today, yeah. but it's another recipe that takes a very long time to work. There are some recipes within here that you have to stir them every hour for three days, and, you know, it's very much a full-time there's a lot of emphasis then on the time and effort that it took to prepare things, whereas mm. now there's much more. Everyone wants things now and instantly, and dawn of convenience food. And it sits in quite stark contrast to the previous take on how food should be eaten and how it should be prepared. Mm. Sure. Um, and there's, we're looking at a page here which has got Scotch eggs on it, which is obviously something we have today, but on the mm. previous page there was black Smyrna raisin wine, I noticed. So we've got <laughs> some... Some some uh, more traditional and some some less traditional. Yeah, you see, you start to see more foreign influence in this one particularly. A lot more in the way of French recipes, mm. definitely, um, which also. kind of fits in with the with the reading we've done that says that you know French chefs became very very popular in courtly kitchens mm. and people tried to emulate these sorts of recipes. So you've got the yeah, omelette and uh, I think there's an omelette sucre in there somewhere and we've got tomato ketchup tomato is also ketchup. an interesting addition because um tomatoes were up until the sort of late 19th century were sort of regarded with a bit of caution and some were, some people saw them as a violent aphrodisiac right. um, the colour would set people on edge a bit and they thought tomatoes might be dangerous so to have a tomato ketchup recipe is probably quite unusual at this time because tomatoes weren't as ready, readily available then Mm. Okay. I suppose them um, being quite a, fa- a family of quite high class, they will have brought a lot of influences from abroad in their travels. This is the time of the Grand Tour, where you know young men of means would go abroad and travel around Europe, and obviously, no doubt, bring things back that they particularly enjoyed. Mention them to their cooks or housekeepers, and ask them to recreate the dishes that they'd sampled mm. on their travels. Mm. And we've got receipts from 1850s time, which are a lot of the products are Italian, so there's Parmesan and vermicelli and things like that. So there's obviously a very sophisticated taste for that time, I think. There's increasing move towards as well buying more things readily made. Mm. As the 19th century progresses, um, with improvements in transport and the improvements in the preservation of food, uh, a lot more a lot more goods are bought from shops rather than grown in the kitchen gardens um, and so you find that in the in our inventories that people have bought things like Italian paste and mm. um, sort of stocks started to be produced as well so people didn't have to boil their own meats for hours to make their own So you've, you've, you've been studying these documents, you've seen some quite interesting things, some, some faintly amusing things but, but some, some interesting findings as well, so what what sort of Learnings are you are you getting here about the consumption and preparation of food in the 17th through to the 19th centuries? Would you say? I think we have noticed in our books that there's not a great emphasis on the cooking of of meat, um, but there is a, a bigger emphasis on confectionery and sweet foods and puddings, and that could partly be to do with the fact that they were considered maybe more difficult to make, and so writing down the method of making them was considered more important. But it could also be to do with the fact that the English were known for their love of sweet foods and um, for confectionery and famous for their puddings and they actually consumed a lot more sugar during this period Mm. than the French. Um, 
so it shows although it show, we can see French influences we can also see quite a strong tradition of English cooking as well in the puddings and the emphasis on the, the sweet foods so how far are you seeing the French influence when do you see it coming through I mean you know famously you've got that French chef Alexis Sawyer who, who was the probably the, the most famous chef of the, uh, who came over here and started introducing French ideas. When, when do you start to see, you know, an inclination, an inkling of a continental influence coming through, Jane? Well, I think in that, the earliest textbook we looked at, uh, recipe book we looked at, which was dated 17th or 18th century thing, they were, as we said previously, there isn't a great evidence of French influence there, but I think when you move to Mary Wood's recipe book, which was then moving into the 1800s, you do notice um, more of a French influence. Not massive, but certain foods like soup à la reine are introduced and omelette sucre, and, uh, which aren't as much in evidence as in the earlier book. And we also notice in these as well a heavy Italian influence in the sort of foods that they bought. Um, the re- um, receipts show macaroni, Italian paste, um, parmesan. So this family seemed to have have quite an, had quite an inclination towards Italian eating, more, perhaps more so than French. Mm. Okay, so you're seeing a European influence, French and Italian, yeah. perhaps as you said before from the experience of the Grand Tour, but not so much from the Empire, perhaps from the from Britain's no. uh, far-flung imperial possessions. Well, there's a coconut pudding um, yeah. over there, so perhaps uh, a West Indian influence, and we didn't have the Indian. Um, biscuits before but yeah apart from that not a great deal mainly French and Italian influences yeah we were expecting to see more I think from the colonies um, and yeah wasn't as in abundance as we thought it would be so it was quite surprising to us I think and finally which of these recipes have you tried out yourself so far uh, we haven't tried any out yet unfortunately but I've got my eye on the transparent gingerbread I see butter and treacle and sugar <laughs> and uh, yeah what about you um, I'd quite like to make the one of the oh the uh, quaking pudding actually um, which I just love the name of it <laughs> it was named because of the way it sort of jiggled when they brought it out so yeah. I thought and the name's the name's good I like it yeah. <laughs> so I hope to make that one sounds delightful So that was Amy Croker and Zoe Harrigan of the Borthwick Institute at the University of York. And that's about all for this week's episode. We shall be back next week when we'll be discussing the Spanish Civil War, among other things. And in the meantime, as usual, keep an eye on our website, historyextra.com, where you'll find blogs, quizzes, galleries and more. And don't forget you can find us on social media, Facebook and Twitter, and you can find our Kindle and iPad editions on the Amazon website and Apple Newsstand, respectively. The History Extra Weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. 
Listen wherever you get your podcasts.